Hey, podcast listeners, this is episode number 124. We're interviewing Lynn Ladner today. Lynn is the town manager and the finance director. Now, you know something. When somebody has two titles, you know it's a small town. That's right. The town of Ocean Ridge only has 1,800 residents, no commercial centers, no businesses. But Lynn is the queen of coming into a small community that has a lot of problems, turning those problems around, kind of dropping it, dropping it in the end zone there and saying, have a nice day. But seriously, Lynn was a fantastic guest. She has a lot of really good perspectives, especially, you know, if you're in a big city, you've got economic development teams, you've got grant writers. She doesn't have those things. And if you're a small town city manager, you're going to love listening to Lynn because she gives us some really good pointers on how to patch together economic development projects for the betterment of your community. Join us with Lynn Ladner. Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host, and each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Well, today we have a, a special guest. She's fresh down from Michigan. She is the queen of going into small communities turning things around, and then getting the hell out. Uh, Lynn Ladner is the town manager and finance director and chief bottle washer of the town of Ocean Ridge. Tell us, Lynn, first of all, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate thank you. you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Ocean Ridge. Ocean Ridge is a barrier island community in Palm Beach County, uh, directly between Manalapan and Gulf Stream to the east of Boynton Beach. And a very small little town. Very small, and it is 100% residential. They don't have zoning permissions for businesses or any kind of industrial. We have two grandfathered businesses left, and once they stop operating, uh, it'll be completely So why, why is that? Why, why doesn't Ocean Ridge want any commercial? Um, that is just a choice that they've made. They've decided that the land value um, and the character of the community that they want is more of a residential. It's very easy for them to cross the bridge into Boynton or go down into Del Rey for a very short commute and have access to those services. Whereas since we're two miles long and a half mile wide, not having to use up that residential space that's is coastal or intercoastal for businesses just provides more opportunities for residents. Yeah, and, and you have both of those communities have great downtowns, they have do. great shopping opportunities, have all the all the accoutrement you can need uh, in a community. And you're right, they're not that far away. So why would you reinvent the wheel when you don't have to? Well, it's the old, it's the old, uh, if I need to run out for a gallon of milk or whatever real quick, uh, you got to go across the bridge. You got to go to the mainland. So it's almost like camping. It's like, make sure you got all your provisions when you head over to the island. Well, if you go down to the south end, you get near briny breezes and you start into Gulfstream and there are a couple of little shops, convenience store type okay. things. So they can get to the small things, but for the major shopping, they do cross the bridge. So your, your specialty is you've, you've represented and worked in, what, five or six small communities. Yes. Um, let's talk first about, you know, because the average size city in Florida is, is I think, between seven and 8,000. You're much smaller than that. 
But that means you don't have departments. You don't have large numbers of staff. How, how big is your staff right now? Our staff, including our full police and dispatch, we have 32 full-time and two part-time employees. So you have to be a jack of all trades. What, what's your background and how did you get here so that you can be both the finance director and the town manager? Um, how did I get here? I have a bachelor's in political science, master's in public administration with both nonprofit and public administration, and I'm a certified senior HR professional. But beyond that, working in small communities, I just had to learn it on the go. Um, I learned IT. I worked for a short time in the private sector for a Fortune 500 company and learned IT there, and I've carried that through. I've been the zoning administrator in every community until now where I am in, in Ocean Ridge, where we contract that out currently. So I had well, to Wait a second. You're in, you're in a town that's zoned completely residential. You don't have a lot of zoning work to do, do you? No, but he has to uh, do all the reviews for land development, for housing development, because we've had significant amount of properties that have been turned over, torn down, and oh. rebuilt. So he has to make sure that the plans for redevelopment meet setbacks, meets all of those type of requirements. Okay. Very, very very interesting. What, uh, what other skill sets do you have to bring to the table to be a good town manager of a small town? Good town manager? Um, a willingness to meet the people where they are. I like to go out into the community. One of the first things I did in Ocean Ridge was I would go out walking in the morning with several of the residents just to meet more residents. Um, patience, a b willingness to work more than 40 hours a week. I... That comes that that goes without saying. <laughs> By the way, we used to have a city manager who uh, every morning before work she would go walk around uh, a little park, and anybody and pe people knew her knew if you wanted to meet with Anita Favors, just head out to the park in the morning and you can take a walk with her and she'll talk business with you. Is that kind of the thing you do too? It is, and I'm looking at starting a program this fall um, when what we call the snowbirds are back in town just to late afternoon sort of not really coffee with the manager because it's too late, but, you know, playing with some different titles like uh, late afternoon talks with the managers, different things. I've You're going to need something a little more catchy than that. I, I, I've got AI working on coming up with titles, <laughs> 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 which goes back to my IT grad background. I mean, I've been an early adopter of using ChatGPT to help us with, you know, if I need to write a job description, I'll pull some from several different communities, tell them, tell the AI how our community is different and ask it to draft me a job description so that I can use that to really reduce the time I spend on that. Um, you know, I got to say one of the most underutilized things right now is the ChatGPT because what we're hearing is all the negatives about, you know, the fear factor, the, you know, space odyssey kind of stuff, you know, the, the robot taking over the world. But having somebody to do the menial task of signs of writing things up, if you get used to using it, it can really be a really cool tool. Oh, most definitely. Um, what I'm, my final project for this week with, or this month with AI is I'm taking all of our budget data and I'm asking it to put it into really simple layman's terms for the public 
budget meeting presentation. I love that. I love that. You know, give me easy to understand charts, easy to understand, you know, narratives so that rather than all the high level that we really bring to the electeds, the regular people can understand where their money's going and why. I love that. I love that because... Yeah, it, you know, budgets can be complicated messes and you can hide things in a budget. But if you're being really not just transparent, but speaking in a language people can understand, that makes a big difference. So your specialty, as it were, is to come into towns with problems, help solve them. And you have a very interesting perspective on that. So tell us a little bit about you come into a town. What are the steps you take to evaluate what's going on and then begin to put a plan in place to to repair those things? Well, the first step is talking to the residents because Not the commission, is talking to the residents. Talking to the residents because when you're hired and you go through the interview process, the commission will tell you what they see as their challenges. But when you talk to the residents, the residents may have a different perspective. Give me an example. Um, my first community that I served, the governing body, they felt that they're biggest challenges where they needed to do a major infrastructure redevelopment of the downtown, basically a streetscape project. Um, talking to the residents, the residents said the biggest problem we have is that our downtown occupancy is 50%, and what good is it going to do to fix the sidewalks if we can't fill the street storefronts? Okay. Of course, you know we, we fix those sidewalks, we fix those streets, we'll change the occupancy. So it's a similar problem, but a different approach. Right. Interesting. Yeah, because why invest in a dying downtown? Well, if we invest, it won't be dying anymore, and it will have the, that vibrant, uh, vibrant uh, streets. And when you build a streetscape, you build a sense of place, then businesses want to start investing. Right. But a lot of times what's talked about in a commission meeting is at such a high level that the residents don't understand it. And again, you know, they wanted stores in the downtown. They didn't understand how new sidewalks and street corner plat, you know, planters that were raised and things like that were going to really do that. And they thought it was a waste of money. And so in that particular instance, how did you resolve it? How did I resolve it? Um, I did both at the same time. I started recruiting businesses from the downtown, um, started working with people that had opened their businesses from their home, uh, different, you know, little jewelry shops, bakeries, uh, catering companies, things like that, and said, look, we've got this storefront down here that's already built out as a restaurant um, because it's vacant it's ended up being transferred over to the town for property we'll give it to you with no lease cost for a couple of years and you can start your business you can move it out of your home so you've got your home back and see if it works as a restaurant um, we had a so that's that's kind of hand-to-hand combat yeah. That's not, you know, because a lot of times we get things, well, we instituted a policy that it sounds to me like you sat down over a cup of coffee uh, and persuaded this person, gave, found out a good deal and persuaded them really hand to hand. Right. And it's looking at what is missing in the community that could benefit the community. That same community was a rural community. There was not a 
hotel you could stay in for 50 miles either way. So when people had their family and guests in for a wedding or a holiday, they either had to put them up in their house or they had to drive 50 miles back and forth to stay in a hotel somewhere else. But we were at the intersection of two major U.S. highways and we had no hotels. So my first stop was I started reaching out to all of the, you know, but middle to lower tier franchise hotels and saying, okay, what can you do here? Here are the demographics. We've got a community college that's 15 miles away that's bringing in sport teams and different things like that for competitions. And again, they're driving Access those to the interstate. Yeah, they're driving those teams to spend the night 50 miles away. What can you do to help us? Build a hotel. A lot of people will assume, well, the free market will take care of that, right? And it may, but if you're not raising your hand and calling on people, they're not going to necessarily notice you. If I'm Hampton Inn and I need, or Hilton Garden Inn or whatever, and I know I I have the budget and the plan to build 30 more hotels next year, I'm more likely to respond to those people who reach out to me and say, hey, we've got land, we can make provisions, we can do all these things, lower your operating costs, lower your entrance fee, you're going to be welcome here. Because as you know, a lot of times people go, oh, this will be a great, our economics say this will be a great place to build a hotel, but the culture of the town, they may not want a hotel there. And you get fighting and pushback. You're reaching out to them and saying, hey, we welcome you. We have this land. We'll make these provisions. And here's the economic benefit as well. And not only that, we were able to show two other projects right next to the land that we were providing the hotel that would bring additional revenue. We had a kidney dialysis center that was opening um, to partner with the the hospital, which was the only hospital in the county. And we're like, you're going to have dialysis patients from... Probably a six-county area because they don't want to drive to Kansas City. They don't want to drive to Topeka to do their dialysis. They want to be closer to home, but they're going to have to spend the night. Ended up building the hotel directly across from the brand-new dialysis center. Used community development and USDA rural development funds to build a child care center, the first child care center in the county that was not a home-based child care center. Partnered with the hospital so we didn't have to put a kitchen in and hire a cook. The hospital provided all of the meals, breakfast, lunch, all the snacks. So it met all the nutritional requirements. We didn't have to worry, you know, about... This is so different. I mean, you literally were like a a, a business bringer together person, you know, like, hey, we got the land. I get the hotel. We'll get the dialysis center, work with the hospital. The hospital works with with the daycare center. Everybody's intertwined. Yeah. And in a small town, all those businesses have to be intertwined because they're all dependent on each other for success. Well, you talked also about, so you come into these towns that have real problems. You work there for a little bit and then you end up leaving. Why? Well, there's two reasons you end up leaving. Um, Either you feel like you've reached the point where you've done everything you can that um, they will let you do. I haven't reached that point yet. Or you get to a point where you have fixed so many problems, you've upset a few people along the way, and they also tend to have changes in the governing body. And that governing body says, well, she's She's fixed this, she's fixed this, she's fixed this, but 
she pointed out all these things and we don't want to remember that. We want to move forward from this spot and kind of forget that maybe we were troubled and we don't want her around as a reminder. We don't want that manager around as a reminder. So they start making staff changes from anybody that can remind them on a regular basis that everything wasn't perfect all along. Well, I th- is it also this concept that when you come into something that's broken and you fix it, and then the next generation of leadership comes in, and, and it's understandable that they don't, under, they don't see that journey. They just know where we are and want to go to the next level. And they're, I think what you're saying is, and they're associating you with all those problems. Yes. Even though you fixed many of them, some couldn't be fixed. They're like, okay, we got to go to the, the next thing. We, we talked offline about the old coach, uh, football coach Lou Holtz, would go into these 0-11 football teams, turn them around, make them 8-3, and and then invariably he'd be asked to move on. Right. Because they wanted to go to the next level. And you're like, you know I can go that too, but you're associating me with the 0-11 team, so uh, we want somebody different. And that's been, I mean, it's been about a two- to three-year journey, right? It has. Yeah. A, a good example of that coach that, you know, comes in and fixes but actually got to stay is Bill Snyder at Kansas State. He took a team that routinely, if they won a game, it was the game against the University of Kansas when it came to football. And he came in in 89-90, and he took the team from not winning a single game even in the conference unless they beat the University of Kansas, to being bowl competitive year after year, having players that are recruited in the NFL. And it's really connecting with the people and connecting with the residents, the businesses, and getting everyone to buy into what you're doing as a long-term strategy. So what you've learned so far, you're now in this in this new posi- relatively new position, what do you bring to the table in that regard? I mean, is, are, they don't sound like where you are now. It doesn't sound like they're badly broken. No, they are not badly broken. They do have uh, challenges. Um, like what? They are still on septic systems. So septic to sewer is a major project that's going to have to be undertaken. Now, you don't have your own wastewater treatment facility, do you? No. So whose do you, who's do you tap into? We would probably tap into Boynton Beach. Okay. And they have, there's lots of grants out there, I know, right now for people to make these conversions. Right. But the community is struggling with whether or not that's something that they want to do now or they want to wait until they are mandated either by the federal government or the state to do so. It's coming. We know it's coming, but, and and that's the struggle I've had in the last year is it's coming. The longer we wait till a mandate, the more expensive it's going to be. Yeah. And these grants, there's federal grants right now. I know we're we're working with the Fort Pierce Utility Authority and we're trying to promote the fact that 9,000 per house approximately for for conversion, that money's not going to last forever uh, because it's expensive to convert. And, you know, it's one thing I've learned. It's not necessarily economically uh, an advantage to the resident. Now, it might be in an area that's high density with a lot of high rises and stuff. You can get economies of scale. But we don't have high rises. Oh, you don't. Okay. You just have single family (laughs) homes. We have a couple of, we have maybe five multifamily developments, but the maximum stories are three stories. Oh, and so you have high-end residences, I take it. Yes. Yeah, they're going to be hard. 
Well, and the hardest part is over the past five years, a lot of them have done significant remodel or tear down and reconstruction and put in very expensive septic systems. Um, yeah, I just spent $25,000 on a new septic field. And I, now, bam, you're going to tell I'm, me how to change. I'm, I'm talking fifty to $60,000, really? uh, what they're called hoot systems, yep. which is basically like a mini wastewater plant yep. and drain field. So I just spent fifty dollars to $60,000. Now you're going to tell me to tear it out and pay a special assessment or increase prices yeah. and a monthly fee. So that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, and you know, and and at that point, the only message you have is for the good of the intercoastal, for the good of our waterways, for the good of the environment. Which, let's face it, when it comes to fifty thousand dollars, we're like, oh, I'm, I really want to protect the environment, but that's a lot of money to protect the environment. Correct. Which is why we're in the situation we're in. You know, I reminded the the they used to say the the solution to pollution is dilution. And now we realize with 20-something million people living in the state and 600,000 of them pooping in the Indian River Lagoon that that's probably not a good answer anymore. That well, you can't dilute anymore to a reasonable amount. Well, and we, we, we used to push it, things out into the ocean and we realized we're destroying coral reefs, we're destroying fish populations, we're destroying the quality of the, of the water that we are dependent upon for our food, right? And so now you've got to process it, clean it, and then, and then put it back in. That's a real challenge. Yes. Uh, because if you're talking, I never heard, I, I thought the maximum price for a septic tank was twenty twenty five thousand dollars I didn't know they had $50,000 ones. Very expensive systems, yes. Yeah. And those are the ones, but they, they, they circulate the water, they, they pump in air, whatever, to, yep. yeah, to do it. So those are probably also not the problem. Because that, that, that they are cleaning it before they put it back into the ecosystem. Right. Those aren't the problems, but they don't, like I said, they don't want to have to have spent that and then three, four, five years later have to say, okay, well, now I have to pay a $10,000 $10, hookup fee. Yeah. 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 And then uh, the disruption. I mean, you're, am I right? You have one major thoroughfare coming through your community? A1A is our major thoroughfare. Would you have to dig up A1A or can they do it through new technologies underground? Um, to put in new sewer mains, you're going to have to tear up A1A because we don't have any kind of sewer mains now. Uh, so based on what you're saying, Lynn, I'm going to predict something. You're going to get this done. It's my goal. In three years, you're going to have this all done, and then you're going to be, the, Lynn's the one who tore up our roads. <laughs> <laughs> but on the positive side, if I can get the septic to sewer conversion done, at the same time we tear up the roads to do that, we can do some major improvements to our water infrastructure because we have several water mains that haven't had, you know, major improvements to them. We've got mains that are still asbestos concrete in the ground that really should be replaced. And you can do it all at once, do two major infrastructure projects at the same time and have the benefit of scale there because you're only hiring one contract, one mobilization, one trench. It's a little bigger trench, but it's one trench. But we also have to get FDOT to agree to let us do this. Oh, at the same time, <laughs> yeah, a lot of moving, a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts. And what's interesting about that is, it's so vital, right? Having the good underground infrastructure, whether it's electricity, water, sewer, everything. 
But unlike the example you were using earlier, sidewalks are visible, medians are visible, changing the parking infrastructure, putting up pretty street lights, putting up hanging planters and those kind of things are quite visible. Your success in getting this done is everything becomes invisible, Yeah. right? Everything, the road is new, it's underground, but the pipes are new and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, if it ain't leaking, it ain't dying, it ain't showing failure, People don't really care. But if we would also partner with FPNL to underground all of our electric wires, that would be a visible thing for the community to hang their hat on, that when this project this, is wires, done, yeah. you don't have all these electrical poles and you're not worrying about that type of thing. And you're less likely to have power outages when you yep. have a hurricane, which is going to happen at some point, at, at some, some time. Point. Yep. Yeah, so that's, that's going to be the challenge, right? The sales pitch to them, which is consolidating, making all these changes at the same time, underground wires, beautification of our streets, especially if in that process you can beautify A1A through your community, right? Yeah. Maybe do something, you know, landscaping or whatever and get DOT to partner with that. But DOT is always so cooperative. <laughs> they, they can be cooperative. Yes, they can. Um, the relationship that I've had with DOT so far has been very good. So I'm very pleased with that. Um, We've got some drainage issues on a retention pond. Well, two retention ponds of theirs by Ocean Avenue, and they're working with us to fix that. Um, a big issue when Nicole came through last year, because the retention ponds weren't functioning properly, the Ocean Avenue bridge was closed, which is an evacuation route, because the road was flooded. Uh-oh because the retention ponds weren't working effectively. So, you know, as we talk to FDOT about that, you know, that isn't just an us problem. That's, that's a, a we problem. That's yeah. a we problem. That's an all of us problem because Nicole was a low category one. What happens the next time if it's a cat two, cat three, and they have... You're closing off the evacuation route. You're closing off one of two evacuation routes because... The bridge is the entrance to the bridge is flooded. You can't get to it. You know, I find DOT actually. I was teasing a little bit about them not being cooperative. They are usually very cooperative, especially at the early stages in working with local government. They're not really good about working with the public. They're like, yeah, they don't know. But once they've come up with a plan and it's been turned over to the engineers and the designers, they are the most intractable people. You know, you can bring up a new issue and like, nope. We've made a decision. We're building this wall here. We're building this road here and get out of our way. And I, and I kind of understand that. Otherwise, you would, what's that paralysis by analysis? You yes. would never get out of your own way on that stuff. Well, so, not only that, everybody would always come up with another new idea and the project would never take place. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. At some point, you got to put the stake in the ground and you, and you, and you got to start uh, moving forward. Um, so any pointers you can give to folks coming into a problem situation, things that you found to be successful in turning things, some things around like that? Everything costs money. So look for out-of-the-box out of solutions. Like what? Um, I always try to pri prioritize funding with private foundations. Um, Every community has at least one major business that does business in their community, even Ocean Ridge, that um, doesn't have businesses that have private foundations. Duke Energy does, FPNL does, uh, any of the rail, rail lines that go through any of your major rail lines will. 
hospital systems have foundations. And if any kind of a project is a park or, you know, walking path, you can usually partner with their private foundations to get money. Um, I've worked with organizations and seen other communities work with uh, giving away naming rights to organizations. If you've got a Domino's pizza in your community, talk to the Major Domino's Foundation and they may donate enough for the improvements to your park that they want it to the be. The play center could be the Domino's Play Center. That's right. Naming rights. That is, is, all, that is interesting. And, you know, we were just talking about the septic to sewer conversion that there's, you know, the, I guess it was, the, was it ARPA uh, or one of those recently passed federal bills? There's money out there. If you're not aware of that and you're not having somebody, even if you have to outsource and hire somebody to help you bring down those dollars, I mean, you're talking thousands of residents at about ten grand a piece. You could bring tens of millions of dollars in federal grant money to do the septic to sewer conversion. And you're absolutely right. At some point, the state the state continues its current trajectory. Mm-hmm. It, you know, they're already saying you've got to get your wastewater treatment plants off the intercoastal and off the Indian River Lagoon within a certain timeline. On and then. We're start moving to advanced wastewater treatment, or eventually we're going to make you move them. And if the con- current trend in Florida growth continues, the problems with both the intercoastal and Indian River Lagoon continue, these are all going to be mandated. Right. So while there's money on the table, while you have time to do some good planning, take advantage of it now and don't wait. And it's an uncomfortable thing, because i got to say, of all the challenges, I think converting from septic, just you identified some of them, yeah. right, is really one of the toughest things, because you're literally asking people to change their backyard. You literally have to dig up their yards. They literally have to pay for this. And I thought, and I was wrong, that then the monthly expenditures would be lower than the maintenance of a septic tank. They're not. They're probably going to be equal, if not higher. Yes, and especially at the beginning because you're paying for those connection fees, you're paying for laying the capital costs, different things like that. But there are ways to, you know, if you're going to go for a federal grant, See if you can stack it on a state grant so that that reduces the city's actual expenditures. Yep. Most of the time, they don't tell you that, you know, your 50% match has to all come from the community. They just say you have to have a 50% match. So if you submit a grant application to the federal government with a 50% match and 30% is coming from the state, 10% is coming, you know, 20% is coming from the community and 50% is coming from the feds. How much money have you saved your community? I love it because you go to the state and they say, you need a, you need a match. You go, well, we got federal money. And then you go to the feds and they say, well, you need a match. You go, well, we got the state money. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's saying, the good out of the box thinking. That is. Um, and at the same time, when you're doing septic to sewer and different things like that, If you want to put in, you know, better sidewalks, wider sidewalks, improve your sidewalks, talk to your local hospital systems. They usually have foundations that are, you know, really pushing to To do things. To encourage people to get out and walk and be healthy. Walking and healthy, you know, things like that. Or if you're near a school system, see if you can then also add on maybe a Safe Routes to School grant that will provide you money for widening and improving the pedestrian and bike pathways to schools through your community while you're redoing those sidewalks as part of the water and septic program. And again, well, and the beautiful thing about that too is at the end of the day, you can present something 
beautiful and usable, right? Yes. Because it's not just underground and we seal it up and it's never to be seen to, or for heard from again, hopefully for 50 plus years. Uh, but what you're saying is then you take that money, you leverage it, and you can make a more beautiful downtown. You can make a more beautiful causeway. You can make something more pedestrian-friendly, biking-friendly. Yeah. Really, I, I, like, I like how you kind of cobble that all together. So what's next? What's next in, uh, in, in the town of Ocean Ridge? What's next? Um, we are trying to prioritize water infrastructure, stormwater infrastructure, and the septic to sewer and how we're going to go after those grants and how we are going to look at multiple layer grants. So um, in a small town, do you bring in a professional grant writing team or is that something you guys do in-house? Ocean Ridge works with a professional grant writing team. Um, my past experience, I've done the grant writing. I have written and successfully obtained federal, state, CDBG, USDRD, USDARD, and EPA grants for other communities. So I like to keep my hands in that, even if we're going to have a professional grant writer, because I do tend to think more outside the box than some well, of the others. No, and in, in everything, you can't just completely, and I think it's an important lesson, especially in a small town, you can't just delegate out everything. I mean, you can delegate it, but you have to supervise and keep your hands in it yep. and throw ideas at them because, uh, you know, consulting firms will, will churn things through and, and do the in-the-box thing. And I'm not a big out-of-the-box person, but what you're saying is not necessarily out-of-the-box, but viewing things from a collector perspective and that patching things together. Uh, I always joke and say, there's reason things aren't in the box because yeah. they got thrown out because they don't work, right? That's, and it's all a metaphor anyway. But what you're saying is you got to be creative in how you pull these things together. And you have to be uh, intentional because money isn't going to just fall out of the sky. You have to go after it. Just no. like you do with the, with, the, with the hotel. Yes. In a lot of ways, you're right. It's not out of the box. It's so much as sort of the Russian nesting dolls of your projects all combined into one yeah. big project. And each one has a different you know, level. And every box or every doll fits inside the other to make one whole project. You know, this is episode number 124. No one's ever used the rushing nesting doll analogy before. <laughs> so we, we're breaking new ground here on the FCC May podcast. Uh, Ocean Ridge. Tell us something cool about Ocean Ridge that we may not know. Uh, oh, there's so many things cool about Ocean Ridge. Uh, we have some of the most involved, friendliest, and committed residents I have ever seen. Um, why is that? And you have a snowbird population too. We do have a snowbird population. Why is that? Um, they are truly committed to their uh, community. Our police department has a support group that annually receives, you know, cash donations to assist with buying different things that the police department needs that wouldn't otherwise fall under the general fund budget. But the support group also collectively um, at Christmas and most recently for school uh, does different drives for different things. Um, we did a back-to-school supply drive for Guardium Ad Litem, and our residents provided so many back-to-school supplies that when the Guardium Ad Litem program showed up, it filled their SUV completely, front seat, middle seat, back seat, all the way to the top. Why do you think that is? Why is Ocean Ridge more engaged? Because they all feel very fortunate to have um, 
in many cases be financially successful as they are or have the financial resources they do and they recognize that not everyone else does and they you know, want to I help wonder people. if it has to do with the intentionality like you you said you moved to Florida you became an empty nester and you realized I can go anywhere I want so I want to go somewhere that I like and I guess when you intentionally move there because you didn't move there because your parents told you to you didn't move there because you had to care for an elderly person and you, it was not against it was against your will or nope. that wouldn't have been your first place and I wonder if a lot of people who live in Ocean Ridge are from somewhere else who came here with intentionality. They are, or they have been lifelong residents. And they just love it. And they love it. What an interesting combination. Well, Lynn Ladner, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. And, and I, love, I love your journey. It's kind of like you're the, the jack of all trades. Come in, fix it up, and uh, then move along. Thank you. Well, hopefully you'll be in Florida and in Ocean Ridge for a very, very long time. That is my goal. I <laughs> appreciate you coming on the show. <laughs> thank you. Folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this has been the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Now, if you have a question you would like to submit or a guest you would like to recommend, drop me an email at svancor at vancorjones.com or message FCCMA on Facebook. Thank you so much for being with us.